Thank you, everyone, for attending today's London Aesthetics Forum and for your patience with today's delays. I believe what we will do is grant our speaker the full hour for the full extent of her talk, and then we will use the remaining time and perhaps some additional time for the Q&A. We would first like to thank our sponsors, the British Society of Aesthetics, as well as the Institute of Philosophy and Senate House for hosting us. And now it is our pleasure to welcome Elizabeth Schellekens-Daman, Chair Professor of Aesthetics at the University of Uppsala, who will present Thinking the Aesthetic, the Noetic Conception of Aesthetic Experience. Thank you very much. And thank you so much for, for coming, not just coming, but also waiting for me. I feel like some kind of rock star. I have an audience has waited for me. Uh, as I'm sure you've heard, I was stuck on the train station in Somerset. I waited on a platform for three hours. So this will also serve as lunch. <laughs> so anyway, um, Alice has gone to print out my talk. Uh, and what I'm going to do today is to go a little bit between reading the talk uh, and uh, presenting, well, kind of um, using the PowerPoint and the text. Uh, the reason is that um, uh, this, or well, a version of this talk, uh, will become uh, the Volheim Lecture uh, at the American Society for Aesthetics Annual Conference in Arlington uh, later on this month. Uh, and I'm also in the process of writing a book about this. So I just thought to myself when I received this invitation, oh, it's fine, I'm going to talk about the book slash lecture. And then I realized that, you know, writing a one-hour evening lecture <laughs> and <laughs> writing a book and then turning that into a kind of 45-minute presentation <laughs> is actually, thank you, not quite uh, as simple as I thought. But I, I, I hope that I haven't missed any of the main ideas that I want to go through uh, since it's kind, of the, it's kind of clear in my head, but I might have um, skipped over something, in which case I hope we can talk about it in discussion. Um, and uh, the, uh, the, the, the theme of the book and the lecture and today's talk is, of course, um, the, well, thinking um, the aesthetic. Right. So thank you for printing this out, Alice. So as you saw from the, um, from the abstract, my hypothesis is that uh, aesthetic experience is a kind of thought, and more specifically, a kind of explorative thought process, which allows us to engage in a set of contemplations, considerations, and observations, which, although not directly aimed at knowledge, often lead to an enhanced understanding or improved epistemic grasp, both of the object of, of appreciation itself and of the wider context in which it is lodged. So not just knowledge of the object of appreciation, but also of the world around it, if you like. On this conception, aesthetic value acts as an invitation to engage in a series of reflective processes during which we rely not only on the perceptual, imaginative and affective abilities which have occupied a very central role in a lot of aesthetic theory, but also on our capacities for what I call sense-making and theory-building. So aesthetic experience can be understood, I claim, as a way of rendering intelligible avenues of thought through the rich and complex interplay of all these abilities and skills. So the imaginative ones, the perceptual, affective, um, theory-building, and so on. And I refer to this as the noetic conception of aesthetic experience in virtue of its emphasis on what we can broadly call, perhaps we'll discuss this, 
kind of the the intellect. Uh, and by what I mean to emphasize with that is this contrast with the sensory. So that the intellect or the noetic should play little or no part in our philosophical accounts of aesthetic experience is, of course, a modern assumption, which, as I see it, has cost us quite dearly. Um, making room for the aesthetic value of pursuits such as philosophy, natural science, mathematics, but also moral character, moral beauty, of course, literature and much modern art, has been at, the, at least kind of difficult on the so-called standard conception, or what I call the standard conception of aesthetic experience. For that conception rests on two main tenets, with an explicit focus towards the sensory, namely that aesthetic experience must be grounded in first-hand sensory perception and characterized by pleasure. And of course, several philosophical and historical reasons underpin this approach, and in the book I try to unpack some of those. But most important, perhaps, is the compelling ambition to demarcate the aesthetic from contiguous kinds of experience, kind of neighboring kinds of experience, value and judgment, in order to secure its autonomy. So I mean that kind of both conceptually and disciplinarily, as it were. So kind of creating, kind of making aesthetics its own autonomous field and trying to secure an independent state standing for aesthetic judgments, aesthetic value, aesthetic experience. Of course, famously, Kant wastes no time in his third critique, driving precisely this project, dedicating the first section uh, of the uh, of the analytic uh, of the sorry the critique of the power of judgment entirely to distinguishing the aesthetic from the cognitive. So the very first thing Kant tells us is that we must bear in mind that aesthetic judgment is not a kind of logical or cognitive judgment. And in a similar vein, of course, David Hume posits a, argues for a dispositional theory of beauty, grounded in kind of empiricism, whereby our judgments of beauty differ fundamentally from cognitive judgments in that the former pertain to the sentiments. So a central feature of the noetic conception of aesthetic experience is thus a call for a revised analysis or a reconfiguration, if you like, of the relation between the aesthetic and the cognitive value with a view to restoring the epistemic credentials of aesthetic experience itself. So rather than seeking to isolate the former from the latter, it hails the advantages of somewhat more porous conceptual boundaries. Is, sorry, the aesthetic need not be excised of all its cognitive components to retain its distinct character. So I'm kind of opening, opening those boundaries a little bit. And in fact, I think a strong argument can be made for the claim that aesthetic experience devoid of uh, cognitive components uh, runs the equally great, if not, well, to my mind, greater risk of collapsing into the merely sensory, a move which would spell the end of much of the contemplative subtlety and breadth which marks many aesthetic experiences. If we instead conceive of aesthetic experience primarily as a kind of explorative thought process capable of creating and motivating new epistemic possibilities in its course, the sensory component can, I think, usefully be bolstered by its intellectual um, counterpart. But I'll come back to this point towards the end of the talk. So the structure of what I want to say today uh, is as follows. Although fundamentally allied to the approach known as cognitivism, 
I am going to begin by analyzing and outlining reasons to be skeptical of two possible cognitivist models of the relation between aesthetic and cognitive value. And I'm going to examine a specific example from art, and I think that will allow me to spell out the main features and principal advantages of the noetic conception of aesthetic experience, which I present as somewhat of a kind of alternative cognitivist model of explanation of the relation between aesthetic experience and understanding. And my main goal with this discussion is to set up the case for a kind of reversal of the way we tend to envisage the relation between sensible and non-sensible or intelligible aesthetic value and aesthetic experience. And this might put me on a collision course uh, with some aspects of the philosophical approach which has come to be known as everyday aesthetics. But I shall suggest a way in which I think at least some versions of that approach could be reconciled uh, with the noetic conception. Good. Oh, sorry, I'm very behind on the, <laughs> on the, on the slides. I'm going to leave that there for a while before I move on to the next one. Okay, generally speaking, aesthetic cognitivism um, is the view that engaging with objects of aesthetic appreciation, mainly artworks, can lead to knowledge and understanding, where the cognitive value that these objects can be said to yield are part and parcel of the general value of the artwork. But how exactly is knowledge or understanding supposed to come about when we engage with a painting or a novel, say? What is the distinct role played by aesthetic value in the process of gaining understanding? A lot of ink has been spent uh, thinking about whether we can um, uh, gain knowledge from engaging with art, and if so, what kind of knowledge? But I think we spent a bit less time discussing exactly how that knowledge comes about in our engagement with art. So that's it's kind of in that area that I'm, that I'm uh, moving now. So prima facie, there seem to be two uh, main options. On the one hand, one can conceive of aesthetic value and cognitive value as independently of one another, right? Simply coexisting in the object of appreciation without significant interaction. So we can call this um, the autonomy model, right? On this line, I gain knowledge from my encounter with an artwork uh, I might gain knowledge about the Chinese practice of foot binding, for example, by reading Yung Chang's novel Wild Swans, even if the object's aesthetic value doesn't play an active role in that learning process. Right? So although our treatment of this particular approach will be brief, because I think it doesn't have a lot of uh, potential, uh, I just want to make three quick observations so, just of the idea that they kind of coexist independently of one another. First, it seems likely that most knowledge acquired from such cases will be propositional by nature. So, for example, knowledge of specific historical practices. Right? Since one acquires knowledge in much the same way that one might pick up information by reading a newspaper article or looking at a documentary. While this is not necessarily problematic in and of itself, it may impose certain limitations on the kinds of understanding or knowledge we can gain by engaging with art. Second, the autonomy model seems particularly vulnerable to the charge often leveled to cognitivists by non-cognitivists, namely that even though it may not be possible to gain some knowledge from engaging with art, we would do just as well, we would be just as well placed, if you like, or perhaps even better, to acquire that knowledge through other means. That's what we think of as the kind of uniqueness uh, charge. 
And third, since the two kinds of value don't cooperate in meaningful ways on this model, it's not clear to me, at least, why this account would qualify as a form of aesthetic cognitivism, right? Or anything other than an instance of an object somehow con conveying or containing information, the gaining uh, kind of awareness of which qualifies as knowledge. So these are three points to bear in mind if we were to want to move forward with the um, autonomy model. Uh, another, perhaps more intuitive way of framing the idea that there is an important connection between aesthetic experience and understanding relies on an explanatory structure whereby it is the experience of the object's aesthetic value which somehow facilitates or expedites the cognitive experience or the epistemic gain. So let us call this the enabler model. Take that from kind of psychology and something enabling something or something else. On this line, it is only by undergoing our experience of the object's aesthetic value that we eventually access or ascertain that same object's cognitive value. Remember again the, kind of, the importance of trying to keep these two values apart to avoid the reductivist uh, threat, possibly. So I think relevant here are accounts emphasizing the way that artworks um, can give us knowledge of how to do certain things or act in certain circumstances. So on this enabler model, aesthetic value serves as the key, if you like, capable of unlocking the knowledge or understanding, which ultimately promotes and enables access, if you like, to its cognitive counterpart. So engaging with the object's aesthetic value thus somehow prepares us, it kind of primes us for knowledge by activating our emotional sensibilities, stimulating us imaginatively, making us more receptive perceptually and effectively, arousing our more targeted attention and, and so on. So that that's kind of seems to me to be a kind of enabling model, if you like. So just to clarify um, that, we can look at an example, we can think of an example um, to talk you through how I think this, this works. Um, so generally speaking, when we immerse ourselves um, in an artwork uh, like Lolita, we become absorbed by its beautiful pro prose or elegant phrasing. We enjoy its dynamic language and um, affectionate and humoristic descriptions. And as we become more and more engrossed and take more and more pleasure in the stylistic tour de force of the novel, we begin to let our moral and philosophical guards down. Our attention is dominated by the work's numerous aesthetic qualities and the delight that we take in them. But gradually, we begin to experience a certain degree of empathy with the protagonist. And as this partial, if you possibly, empathy sets in, the moral boundaries between him and us become less clear-cut. And at some point, we find ourselves probably alarmingly comfortable with the proposed narrative, as if we had temporarily suspended what we ourselves believe and stand for outside the fictional world of the artwork. And as a result, we begin to reflect on the depth of our own moral commitments, the ease with which such commitments can shift, sometimes even imperceptibly, the levels of self-deception one might be at risk of, and so on. And so the aesthetic has in this way participated in the cognitive work, principally in a preparatory capacity, by subjecting us to an experience which eventually prompts or induces uh, understanding or insight. 
Now, of course, the enabler model can take many different forms, and not all versions will be um, uh, vulnerable to the same set of criticisms. But I think we find three, sorry, we find, no, <laughs> we still find three features at its core, as you can see from um, at the bottom of the slide. First, it, it adheres to an empirical conception of aesthetic value, whereby the aesthetic value of art is identified with the value of our first-hand experience delimited by parameters set by the standard conception. The aesthetic experience is no, what, we, what we gain in engaging um, uh, sense perceptually with the artwork. And this means that the cognitive experience in which our understanding or insight can be said to be realized is preceded by an aesthetic experience conceived primarily as this sense perceptual engagement with the artwork's aesthetic qualities. And second, there is uh, an emphasis on, on affect, I think. This, is, this is, would be interesting to discuss, but I think that it's, it's there. For it seems to be mainly due to the emotional elements of the aesthetic experience that we undergo, and we often use that language, like going through or undergoing something, and the manner in which they influence our psychological receptivity to knowledge, if you like, that the latter is considered possible. And third, the enabler model takes aesthetic value to serve a fundamentally instrumental role in relation to cognitive experience. Aesthetic value has this kind of contributory function or contributory role in relation to cognitive experience uh, insofar as once we can access the object's cognitive value, once that access is secured, the task of its aesthetic value has already been completed. So I, I don't mean to deny that some cases of art yielding knowledge may operate roughly on these lines. Our aesthetic and, sorry, our aesthetic and epistemic psychologies uh, are complicated, of course, and understanding can occur in all sorts of circumstances. But I think that even a brief observation of the enabler model sketched in these general terms draws out some reasons to be concerned about the proposed structure, structure underlying it. And on the one hand, you might say, uh, one might want to take issue with the uh, particular characterization of aesthetic experience which is offered here, or the underlying assumption that having an aesthetic experience is at least paradigmatically as I mentioned a moment ago, a matter of kind of undergoing something emotionally, somehow disarming us, right? Disarming us in ways that new, new insights become possible for us. And I think this seems uh, problematic, not least since it's not obvious why, if, I can, if we can agree as I think we can, that not all aesthetic qualities are emotionally charged per se, it's not obvious why we should resist the idea that the experience of aesthetic qualities can also be um, dispassionate, impartial, or disinterested in that sense. At the very least, uh, aesthetic experiences afford different levels of effective involvement, some of which will be fairly minimal, depending on the quality which is in focus, of course. And what is more, the idea that the experience of aesthetic value is some kind of precondition for engaging with the object's cognitive value, or that the former has this primarily uh, instrumental role from an epistemic perspective, 
seems problematic in that it also diminishes um, the highly particularized nature of the link between the object's aesthetic value and its distinct yet correlated cognitive value. We need to pay attention <laughs> insofar as it's not because we find a certain aesthetic quality or certain aesthetic value in an artwork that we can deduce that there is this kind of cognitive value. We need to be careful and attentive to, to the particular circumstances. And I just think also the enabler model uh, fails to match much of our aesthetic phenomenology. Right? When I read Toni Morrison's uh, Sula or I watch Ingmar Bergman's Autumn Sonata, the epistemic gain which occurs just doesn't seem contingent on the aesthetic experience being conceptually or chronologically prior um, in that sense. So to say that I first have to be somehow struck by a novel or film's aesthetic qualities disarming me in that way in order to be able to learn about it uh, from about friendship and or love or courage or racism about it it doesn't seem impossible but it seems a rather kind of strained description of what I think is a much more integrated process so that's what I'm heading to now so to introduce this more integrated account so let me ask you to consider uh, Jacques-Louis David's uh, The Death of Socrates Please you. <laughs> uh, what do we see? What do we see in this painting? So the first thing which strikes us, of course, is um, the figure of Socrates. The philosopher is calm, one hand extended over the ominous cup, the other pointing towards the light and higher metaphysical plane. He is surrounded by men of varying ages, most of whom show emotional distress, unlike himself. One man handing him the cup looks the other way, incapable of sharing Socrates' peace of mind. Another young man clutches Socrates' thigh, and an elderly man sits at the end of the bed, looking into his lap. Only the two older men, distinguished also by their white dress, as opposed to all the others who wear colour, only they are serene and collected. Rather than trying to flee, Socrates uses his impending demise to give his pupils one final lesson. In one sense, the work might not seem very cognitively fruitful. Most viewers already know the basic facts of the event, if only from the title of the artwork, right? And more information can be gained by other means or texts, so it cannot truly count as a significant source of, say, historical knowledge, and what's more actually contains some um, uh, factual inaccuracies, such as the um, uh, David altered the number of people present um, to mirror the same amount of people present at uh, Leonardo da Vinci's Last Supper <laughs> uh, and a few other inaccuracies. But in another sense, I think a more patient engagement with the work's aesthetic value reveals a wealth of epistemic possibilities. We are faced, I think, with aesthetic and epistemic choices already at the first glance. Now, if we begin by looking at the painting from the right, we first see a handful of grieving men, skillfully juxtaposed, constituting an artful aesthetic composition in their own right. Clearly, something terrible and serious is happening. We then see Socrates, powerful and steadfast, philosophizing to the last, his moral rectitude and integrity mirrored in his elegant physical demeanor. The poison, which will have to be drunk, 
quite literally takes the visual center stage, indicating the horrible and yet irreversible outcome of the scene, despite the treacherously simple and delicate appearance of the cup. The god handing Socrates the poison, apologetic and already remorseful, turns his exquisitely delineated back to us in shame. And we then see the pensive, nearly wistful resignation of the other old man. And this is Plato, although he was actually younger than Socrates in reality at the time. So that makes us think. His profile is statuesque and dignified, deploring what is about to come to pass. And then finally, we see a delicately painted, sorry, <laughs> small group um, thought to be Socrates' family, ethereal, one of whom turns towards the scene while walking away as if to say one final goodbye. Now, if we look at this painting from left to right, however, our attention is first drawn to the somber Plato, icily elegant in his pain. He seems to be thinking back to this event, narrating Socrates' life and thought to us, just as he did in the dialogues. Now the story begins with a beautiful young god handing Socrates the hemlock. The latter, nearly iridescent, pays little attention to the cup, as if embodying his commitment to enlightening our minds through philosophy. The man gripping Socrates' leg, so vividly depicted, faithfully holds on to his teacher and everything he stands for, clasping both of his friends and his principles. And the scene ends with a remarkable, a remarkably dynamic and graphic representation of the joint despair in which we all partake, captured by the graceful consternation of a couple of youths, as well as the dramatic gestures of some individuals who mostly hide their faces from us in the loss of the philosopher and the impersonation of his ideals. So in this brilliant and exciting artistic composition, we are presented with extraordinary visual perspectives, stunning contrasts of light, a vibrant palette of colors and tonalities, a superb clarity of line, vigorous movement, and an exceptionally well-depicted range of human emotion. As viewers, we are witnessing a momentous event which speaks to us of the meeting of great philosophical minds, the importance of moral freedom and the ideals of philosophy, the value of truth, the value of knowledge itself, the gravity of the violation of these ideals, the willingness one might have to sacrifice oneself for them, the tragedy of the loss of Socrates and more. These serve as the focus of our explorative thoughts, continually evolving and connecting in new constellations to forge a great variety of epistemic combinations and hypotheses. So even from this very short description, there's plenty more to say about this painting, uh, we can surmise that it is already here, in experiencing the work aesthetically, that these probing thought processes occur. It is in the very act of engaging with the painting's distinctly aesthetic character that we begin to grasp not only its central themes, but also some of the different perspectives one can take on them. 
It's in the very process of discerning the work's aesthetic qualities that we come to access its cognitive dimension in this sense. It is in the aesthetic contemplation of the painting that we grasp the depth of the tragedy and that we consider the fate of other heroic individuals who may have that in common with the philosopher. The aesthetic appeal of the painting is, I think, inseparable from the call to engage with these ideas. Our understanding of the tragedy and the meaning of Socrates' death is thus directly in proportion with the work's aesthetic value. So when we engage with the work's aesthetic value, what we find are themes for meditation, introspection and reflection. So, to be sure, strictly speaking, our experience of an object's aesthetic value can be said to render possible, perhaps even enable, an experience of its cognitive value here too. But only in the sense that it is within the former that much of the object's epistemic potential takes form. So gaining insights about an object, but also of the world outside it, is part of the aesthetic experience appropriate to the object. So unlike in the explanation sketched earlier, aesthetic value is neither to be accounted for in traditional empirical terms, nor does it play an instrumental role, sorry, an instrumental cognitive role, after which it has exhausted its epistemic purposes, if you like. Aesthetic value is not eventually dispensable in the pursuit of knowledge, but rather continually generative of it. And I think this transpires when we sever our connection with the aesthetic experience. What seemed insightful, astute, or clever just a moment ago can seem insignificant, incoherent, and trivial. Why? Well, I think art helps us frame the problem. Artworks tend to call on us to inhabit a certain perspective. But some perspectives cannot be seen, grasped, or fully understood outside the aesthetic experience. If it is difficult to, kind of what I've called, extract, extracting a work's cognitive value from our encounter with it, that is because it is often in an integral part of our aesthetic experience of the work. So learning from art is not a matter of plucking or wringing knowledge from the artwork. Instead, aesthetic value plays a unifying role in the learning process. So rather than understanding being only the ultimate consequence of aesthetic experience, aesthetic experience is itself a kind of explorative thought process which always carries the potential to develop our epistemic relations to the world and often amounts to a form of insight or understanding in its own right. So I think it's in this sense that we can say that the aesthetic value of uh, the death of Socrates, but also of Emma Bovary, um, or, um, or one of my favourites here, uh, Cornelia Parker's uh, Cold Dark Matter, acts as an invitation to engage in a series of thought process during which we rely, again, not only on our perceptual, imaginative and effective skills, but also on our abilities for sense-making and uh, theory-building. Aesthetic experiences can then be under understood as a way of rendering intelligible possible avenues of thought 
through the rich and complex interplay of all these abilities and skills. So, on the noetic conception, as I call it, it is through explorative thought processes such as these, processes which can only meaningfully be experienced in our engagement with aesthetic value, that aesthetic experience molds mold or continuously again, our continuously evolving epistemic outlook on the world. We discover new possibilities, new connections, we build fresh associations, we shape and we sharpen our perspectives. A roadmap takes form, as does a certain cognitive traction on the subject matter. And in that sense, I think aesthetic experiences can be seen as a form of understanding or a form of seeking understanding um, in itself. So, uh, elsewhere, I have argued that the aesthetic experience of, aesthetic, of intellectual pursuits, such as conceptual art, science, philosophy, more, um, and more things, can be um, what I call epistemically motivating and epistemically creative, without risking losing their distinctly aesthetic character. And by this I mean that inherent to the aesthetic experience is a motivation to develop a richer and often more systematic grasp of an event or of a phenomenon where one actively deploys one's beliefs and suppositions about the world to gradually expand and enhance one's epistemic relations to it. So to be epistemically creative is to bear the mark of the kind of inventiveness which involves taking what we apprehend, or what we discern, kind of forward in this way. We, 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 go, we go somewhere with it, if you like. And to that extent, it also relies quite heavily on the epistemic agency of the subject of the aesthetic experience. You know, there's a responsibility on us, if you like. So aesthetic awareness is closely connected to what I have referred as this coming to know of the world in a new light. And aesthetic experience can, I think, be seen to evolve this branching out of our thoughts in ways which often lead us to alter or kind of reset our or in, sorry, individual perspective on the world. So that aesthetic experience involves recognizing um, novel constellations of ideas. It involves grasping connections in their broader framework and intimating further ones. There is a, a coming to discern, if you like, certain narrative associations. There's a coming to ascertain the weight of a specific factor or component or the broader implications of them. There is a coming to apprehend events and phenomena in the context of different theoretical frameworks. And so speaking in, in general terms, this is a conception of aesthetic experience as a process whereby we come to grasp an order of things, proportions, and recognize how individual parts can be made to fit into a whole. So engaging with aesthetic value can thus be a case of the various aspects of experience fitting together in ways that are always, sorry, that are also satisfying in virtue of making sense of various events, phenomena, or persons. And in the book, I talk more about this idea of fitting together, also in relation to um, some of the 
uh, rationalists, well, what the, how the uh, ra German rationalists thought of um, what beauty um, consisted of. Now, I think we can allow ourselves to be pluralists about how aesthetic experience can yield knowledge and understanding and of which kinds. And of course, and this is the part of the talk where I start like preempting your objections, different cases will call for somewhat different descriptions. Uh, at times, I think perhaps especially in connection with complex narrative artworks, aesthetic experience offers us, I think, fairly concrete insights about particular moral or philosophical concepts, of course, as has been argued, and can it allow us to extrapolate these uh, to similar cases also outside of the artwork, right, in very sophisticated ways, the way we can bring certain insights to bear on our own lives from what we've seen or, in, or, or experienced in an artwork. But then, of course, at, at others, aesthetic experience present us with an, an opportunity to con contemplate less specific themes, if you like, right, and develop our thoughts in more meandering ways. <laughs> So coming to know can, I think, uh, sometimes be akin to a kind of working things out, if you like. But at others, it probably comes closer to what you might describe as a kind of quiet or slow unfolding of a rather more shapeless uh, form of insight, mm -hmm. such as when we spend our days, uh, walk, or spend a day walking in the mountains, right? And in admiring the aesthetic value of our natural surroundings, we also develop an awareness of our place in the world in connection to them. And I think it's often said that uh, immersing ourselves in nature gives us perspective. So <laughs> uh, perhaps, perhaps it's in the same ballpark as this idea, but I, but I take it that what we mean by that, at least partly, is that we manage to reposition ourselves somehow. Um, maybe to various worries or various concerns. We might reorganize our priorities. We might reattune ourselves to our own circumstances. All of which with a view to make a kind of better or more harmonious sense of how things fit together. So here's the kind of the fittingness idea again. So you might also choose to talk, as, as more and more people do, of course, of the transformative power, or the self-transformation, or the transformative power of aesthetic experience in this context, right? Not, in, not, not least in the virtue of how our thought processes can, I think, alter our epistemic outlook, both in general and in personal terms. And I think that also, uh, at least at times, um, um, which epistemic ga gain we stand to make from engaging aesthetically with the object appreciation will depend greatly, as I mentioned a moment ago, on the epistemic agency that we deploy in this engagement. So although it is the artwork or the object of appreciation which serves as this invitation to engage in an explorative thought process, it is how we fill these forms, and in, uh, sorry, it's how we fill these thoughts that determines the understanding in question. So on this picture, and here I'm aware I'm going quite rapidly, but we can talk about this possibly. On this picture, it seems obvious enough that what I learned from reading Virginia Woolf's A Room of One's Own need not and maybe even cannot be exactly what you gain from reading um, that book. For in my aesthetic engagement with the object of appreciation, I of course also bring my past experiences and convictions to bear, to bear. 
as well as my moral and social awareness of various events and phenomena. So this is, of course, a charge that, again, non-cognitivist level against cognitivists, that you know, there is this kind of huge diversity in what you may learn, but I think that is a strength and there is a very good explanation to why that is the case. So again, to, to a certain extent, and I think those of us, I don't know if there's anybody but Alice in the room, who are eager to defend the cognitivism about, <laughs> about aesthetics in aesthetics, I hope there are. Um, I think those of us eager to defend the cognitivism anyway can be hopeful about resetting the parameters of the debate between cognitivists and non-cognitivists. For if aesthetic experience is a kind of sense-making thought process, cognitivists need not establish beyond doubt how art or aesthetic experience is a tool for producing transferable knowledge, the full meaning of which must remain intact from one context to the next, as we've really tr tried very hard to do, to establish. We, don't, we need not do that so much as to show how aesthetic experience offers important opportunities to seek understanding by a kind of thinking enriched by its unique perceptual, emotional and imaginative sensitivities. Now, not every aesthetic experience will yield knowledge and understanding can occur in many different circumstances and sometimes not at all, right? But I think that in aesthetic experience, we are always in the business of trying to grasp, trying to make sense of, of coming to understand, if you like. So, Emphasizing what I refer to as the noetic character of aesthetic experience in this way may seem a very risky strategy, right? And here are some risks. <laughs> I'll first just list them. Um, first, some of the cases that we tend to think of as aesthetic may no longer qualify. Second, it undermines the standard conception of aesthetic experience and its focus on the sense perceptual, and by extension, uh, the so-called acquaintance principle that has played a very important role in, aesthetic, in aesthetics. Third, it presents as paradigmatic to our conception of aesthetic experience manifestations of aesthetic value, which most would seem, would deem to be kind of peripheral, right? Like, like the aesthetic experience of philosophy or the aesthetic experience of conceptual art or the aesthetic experience of, of science, for example. And fourth, it goes against the tradition of imposing a strict separation kind of between the aesthetic and the cognitive to secure the aesthetic. And my short reply is that I think we ought to bite the bullet on all these points. <laughs> okay. So to be sure, some of the cases that we might consider instances of aesthetic experience will instead pertain to the agreeable or just the sensible. The feeling which arises from looking at a prettily coloured scarf or the sensation of the first snow falling on my face, which are instances that have been cited as aesthetic experiences, they just seem to me too thin or too far removed from the thought processes described above, even those of, of nature, to count as aesthetic. Okay? That is not to say that they are not valuable at all, nor that they cannot have any phenomenal qualities in common with aesthetic experience. But not everything which is pleasant, agreeable, nice looking, or indeed unpleasant, disagreeable, uh, or unappealing is aesthetic. I'm sorry, <laughs> that's just the way it is. 
Um, of course, exactly where to draw the line between the aesthetic and the non-aesthetic is exceedingly difficult and presents us with serious um, consideration. Can serious consideration needs to be paid to how we want to draw that conceptual boundary, also on the noetic conception moving forward. But I think that equating the aesthetic with the sensory, as some proposals currently on the table come close to doing, um, involves a very serious reductivist threat too. Um, The way that a particular colour strikes us, or indeed the chill caused by entering into uh, a space, can be part of an aesthetic experience okay, without necessarily constituting one single-handedly. So I'll return to this point right at the end. Now, with regards to the standard conception, okay, there is already a considerable and, and growing literature listing the numerous problems which arise both for the claim that aesthetic experience and judgment must be grounded in first-hand perception and the stipulated role or character of the pleasure involved. Simple hedonic accounts have successfully been rejected by now, I think it's fair to say, as have theories disallowing aesthetic testimony um, absolutely, and even um, inferential reasoning. So can some features of the standard conception be salvaged? I think my answer there is quite possibly. One way would be to cash out what it means for us to engage with the object of appreciation directly as a kind of engaging in thought, right, rather than sight or touch. And I think in the case, for example, of a lot of dematerialized art or conceptual art, serious and extended attention and imagination may suffice for there to be something like so-called proper engagement or for that condition to be met, rather like we do in literature. Um, also, and as I also mentioned in the, in the, in the paper uh, that was on the um, PowerPoint a moment ago, I'm working a bit on this idea that seeing in um, the standard conception or in the idea that we need to see the object of appreciation for ourselves can be replaced by a kind of intellectual form of, of perception where you might see that it's, well, you might say that the seeing is more uh, closely related to a kind of realization, the kind of the the seeing of insight, if you like, (laughs) the kind of seeing how things fit together. So I think there are possibilities to explore to retain the kind of the skeleton of the standard conception, even though I'm quite eager to reject um, some of the more traditional ways of uh, formulating it. What of the charge then uh, that the noetic conception puts marginal cases center stage, right, by taking intelligible manifestations of aesthetic value to be not out there in the kind of um, um, uh, uh, kind of in the periphery, but rather central to aesthetic experience? And here I really had to cut down this section of my paper because I just wanted to say tell you so many things. <laughs> but looking back, I think at the history of philosophy. Um, of course, this, I, this, this approach that, that uh, I'm, um, I'm defending hardly seems outlandish, right? Um, in the symposium, Plato writes that the beauty we ascribe to objects of sense perception is derivative of the beauty we ascribe to objects intelligible to the mind alone. And sensible beauty is, of course, an imitation of intelligible beauty, incoherent in isolation from its source, which I think is interesting. And similarly, Plotinus regards intelligible beauty as the archetype 
of sensible beauty. Cases of sensible beauty are a reflection of the more complete kind of beauty to do with actions, types of scientific understanding, and the virtues. Um, for Plotinus, to be a person or to have a soul involves being in a constant state of confusion in a world of flux. And so the soul's desires are directed towards a kind of state of equilibrium or harmony. You know. So this continual striving for harmony is, of course, not something we're always conscious of, but it is a natural impulse which is experienced by us as a kind of longing. So to target and engage with intelligible beauty is more rewarding, since it is here that the soul comes to know itself, if you like, and thus attains this longed-for um, equilibrium. And so the experience of beauty is fundamentally connected to the harmonious assembling of diverse or similar parts, or if you like, when knowledge and perception cohere somehow. So to this extent, we can say that beauty stimulates or motivates the development of knowledge, because it is through the experience of beauty that the search for self-knowledge makes itself known to us. Yes, I really want to talk about the German rationalists, but I think I'll wait with that. <laughs> of course, harmony and concordance and seeing unity and variety is also very important to them. Um, and of course, beauty um, being defined as, um, as perfection um, in the sense that beauty is the quality which somehow gives, um, uh, that we refer to when we say that something has an appearance of everything just fitting together. That's kind of the perfection uh, by which the rationalists define beauty. So this brings us quite naturally to the fourth point and the charge that the approach underpinning the noetic conception goes against the well-established tradition of separating the aesthetic from the cognitive. And again, there's plenty to say here, but this is a philosophical tradition which is fairly recent too. In addition to some of the historical sources I just mentioned, it's worth bearing in mind that it is the threat of having to reduce aesthetic judgments to logical or cognitive judgments, for which there are, of course, principles, rules, and deductions. It's that which drives Kant to distinguish between two kinds of judgment in the first section of the Critique of the Power of Judgment. The idea driving that project is not that the aesthetic ought to be purged entirely from the cognitive in the way that some subsequent theories have supposed. Although there are no rules for beauty and aesthetic pleasure is disinterested, the notions of purposiveness without a purpose, the sensus communis, and others add an important cognitive dimension to Kantian aesthetics. And of course, it's not until the rise of the concept of fine arts in the second half of the 18th century that we see the separation between the arts and the sciences or, sorry, sorry, the arts and the sciences, or other intellectual pursuits, which seems so inevitable today. One of the things I'm working on for the moment is this idea that um, all the arts might be considered uh, so-called ars inveniendi, or um, uh, the kind of arts of discovery, if you like where all the arts belonging to this classical category of arts in Veniendi um, uh, exercise one ability, uh, which is that of wit, right, or ingenuity. So the role of the ability um, that we have for wit is really 
rather important in the history of aesthetics. Um, and what does wit consist of? Well, it consists in the power of noting resemblances between things. And is, found, is said to be found preeminently amongst poets who bring out similarities between the things that we would often not notice in our daily life. So it's, the study of wit is also about seeing connections, seeing new possibilities, and a capacity for inventive thought and understanding. In the words of Samuel Johnson, wit lies in the assemblage of ideas and putting those together with quickness and variety. Good, you'll be glad to know <laughs> I'm getting very much to the end of the talk now. So, the conception proposed here gives us reason to suggest a different way of conceiving not only of the place of the noetic in aesthetic experience, or indeed the role of intelligible value in aesthetics, but also what we have come to see, I think, as the given direction between sensible and, and intelligible aesthetic value or experience. So instead of taking the former, the sensible value, sensible aesthetic value, as a natural starting point from which to you know, stretch our accounts as far as possible to see how much of the more abstract kind of cases um, um, we might be able to include, um, I, I'm suggesting, I think I'm suggesting, <laughs> somewhat of a reversal of that direction. For if we take aesthetic experiences to be conceived primarily as explorative thought processes and hold that this is the common denominator of aesthetic experience, then it is our engagements with philosophy, sorry, our, our aesthetic engagements with philosophy, with mathematics, with much literature and modern art, with science, rather than our experiences of how the sun feels on our skin or what it feels like to sit in this chair, which are famous examples, it's rather upon these first set of cases that we should model our aesthetic theories. So what on this uh, line are the prospects of the everyday cases of aesthetic experience which, which have been accorded so much, well, a considerable place in our field over the last 30 years or so? Does my proposal alienate so-called everyday aesthetics, uh, the approach according to which our focus should lie on the experiences we can find in our ordinary day-to-day -day instead, such as picking out a dress in my wardrobe or uh, a bouquet at the florist? Well, I think that will depend. <laughs> um, certainly my argument commits me to the idea that everyday aesthetics has done us a disservice by consolidating um, the supremacy of the sensory in aesthetics. But it seems to me that there are aspects of this approach which could be made to align with the noetic conception too. So I just want to mention two just to end this talk. And I find the most um, interesting work here, um, the work of uh, Yuriko Saito. So for Saito, although we must keep focusing on the sensuous quality experience with sensibility in aesthetics, our, I quote, experience of the ordinary is also captured by attending to the aesthetic experience of doing things. And this is what she refers to as an activist aesthetics in which cooking, cleaning, gardening, doing laundry, it's a particularly interesting one, doing laundry, also become potential targets of aesthetic experience. So underlying this emphasis on the everyday is a, also a commitment to a shift away from an aesthetics based only on the objects, on the material objects in our environments, 
so it's not entirely unlike some aspects of the noetic conception. After all, some accounts of intelligible beauty specifically discuss you know, virtuous behavior, scientific investigation, engaging in rhetoric, and so on. Um, uh, you might want to refer to that as a kind of activist aesthetics. And the second feature of the, this particular everyday aesthetic uh, theory that I think might be made to, to, to work at least somewhat with the noetic conception is the way in which Saito argues that in engaging aesthetically with these everyday phenomena, we must pay close attention to what we are experiencing. I sound like a school teacher now, but we must pay close attention. And there seems to be room here, I think, for something like a broader contemplative or meditative process. Uh, she writes beautifully about the aesthetics of doing laundry. So for Saito, the seeming insignificance and triviality of everyday aesthetics conceals the considerable power that everyday aesthetics wields on humanity's ongoing project of world-making. The benefit of more attentive and mindful living, she writes, through the lens of everyday aesthetics is rather familiar to its advocates uh, as well as the practitioners in different fields such as art, psychology and religion. So although I really don't have a lot to say about this yet, I, I, I'd like to be hopeful and think that instead of the noetic conception um, really um, excluding or um, rejecting uh, all aspects of everyday aesthetics, which has received so much attention in the last uh, few years, there might be um, a way in which we might reconceive of the relation between the intelligible and the sensible, much like has been you know, was done in some of the historical theories I mentioned a moment ago. So the noetic conception need not be on a devastating collision course uh, with everyday aesthetic, if you like. So I think I'll end there, but thank you very much for your attention.